Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, and I'm going to finish this sermon series we've been in, in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, called Freely Bound, where we've been exploring the truths behind our freedom in Christ, yet our obligation to sacrifice that freedom in as much as we don't ever want to be a stumbling block to another follower of Jesus. Paul deals with this beautifully in an articulate and intelligent way in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to finish chapter 9 this morning, and then next week I'm so excited to dive into a Christmas series with you simply entitled Before the King. And then at the conclusion of that, at the beginning of the year, We'll go right back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in a new sermon series I've entitled American Idols. But this morning, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through verse 27. When I read the passage in just a few moments, you will find much familiarity with it. It is one of those passages that is easy to read, even easier to understand, and it warms our heart and motivates us in the Christian life. I don't have to tell you that yesterday was rivalry weekend nationwide. And I recognize that I have the task this morning of preaching to half of you who were dealing with pride and the other half of you who were dealing with humility. But when we come to rivalry weekends, we do think about winning and losing. And then we, if we're serious about following the Lord, think, am I winning at the Christian life? What if the secret to winning in the Christian life really wasn't a secret? What if there is not a mysterious formula that some get and some don't? What if a victorious Christian life is available to every single follower of Jesus, regardless of their circumstances? I'm not speaking of an unbiblical truth an unbiblical lie, rather, that says that the victorious Christian life is free from struggle, heartache, sickness, disappointment. That life does not exist. Jesus did not have that life. The Apostle Paul did not have that life. And no one who is serious about following the Lord gets to follow the Lord free from sacrifice, free from sorrow, free from struggle. But you can, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your sorrow, even in the midst of sacrifices God may call you to make, you can live a victorious Christian life. And the better news is not only that that's possible, that there is no secret to it, that it's actually laid out for us in plain, simple terms in passages like today. In fact, if I were going to give this sermon a title, I would call it Free to Run, Bound to Finish. Let me read the passage with you. Read along with me silently as I read aloud. As Paul concludes chapter 9. Do you not know? For those of you who are members of Church of the Mill, you'll recognize that lingo from chapter 5 and chapter 6. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul saw the Christian life parallel to an athletic event. In the book of Acts, Paul makes this statement about his life. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only, so Paul's saying, here's what matters to me. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, Paul was pretty myoptic, meaning he had a singular focus. He basically said, I can lose my life or I can gain my life. What I care about is that my life count, that I run the race God has laid before me, that I not only enter the race, but that I compete in the race and that I finish the race according to the plan God has for me. Now, don't let yourself off the hook. While there are some differences between you and me and the Apostle Paul, I recognize that. The Apostle Paul would tell you that his theology of life is true for every single Christian. Whether you be a young mother here raising toddlers or a retiree, maybe you're in a time of transition, maybe you find yourself living a life of extreme blessedness right now, or you're going through a time of want and need, if you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus, God does not wish or will that you walk in defeat. Rather, he wants you to live a life that is victorious in Christ, even in the midst of sorrow and struggle and difficulty in whatever way it may come, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational. When those things come into our life, we can maintain a faithfulness in our walk as to how we run the race. Why? Because the freedom we receive in Christ frees us to run, yet the joy of the Lord gives us the wisdom to handle being bound to his will even when it's difficult. So we're free to run, but we, church family, are bound to finish. Now, whenever you get around children and athletics, usually the first thing they care about is the equipment. You miss six balls in the third inning, son. Dad, I need a new glove. And I say, son, it's not the glove. And they say, well, why do you keep buying golf clubs? And I say, shut up, son. <laughs> the reality is we know athletes like to look good. But when you find yourself in a real competition, all that stuff fades away. I had a friend named David who decided he was kind of a free spirit, still is, who decided at the conclusion of his college uh, career, a student, he wasn't a college athlete, but he finished his degree. He was young, unmarried, had a little bit of time, didn't need a lot of money, loved to be outside. He decided to hike the entire Appalachian Trail. The whole thing continuously. The whole thing, continuously, <laughs> continuously. Some of you get upset when the escalators broke at the mall. <laughs> he said he went to a hiking supply company. He bought the best boots, the best backpack, the best equipment. 
He said two weeks in, he realized he'd made a mistake. He did it. He finished it. In fact, the last few days, he hiked day and night. You can do this when you're 22 and young. And he said he realized all he needed was a fanny pack and a pair of shorts and tennis shoes and his dog. And he made it. He said, putting all that weight on you slowed me down so much that it would have taken me twice as long to do it. I was about speed. The, the reality is there are all kinds of equipment that you wear in all types of competition. But if you are in a competition related to speed, you want to be as light as possible. There are no 250-pound thoroughbred jockeys walking around today. They're little bitty fellas, and they're wiry, and they're strong, because we want that horse to run as fast as it can run under human guidance. In other words, when you find yourself in a real competition, one that has eternal ramifications, there's just some stuff that matters. And I believe this passage shows us that. Let me show you very quickly. First of all, what matters is the race. The race matters. Look at verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Why would Paul use the analogy of a race? Well, you know that Paul was ministering in a Greco-Roman world, a world ruled by Rome but influenced by the Greeks. In fact, Corinth was the seedbed of Greek culture. Well, guess what else the Greeks invented? The ancient games of competition, one of which still exists today, the Olympic Games. But in the ancient world, there were other rival games. The Isthmian Games actually originated in Corinth because Corinth was the isthmus of Corinth. And isthmus is a geographical term, a stretch of land. If you were to pull up a map today of modern-day Greece and you were to look at the island off of southern Greece, the isthmus of land that connected that island with the mainland is where Corinth sat. Ancient Corinth's ruins are there today. And this was the home of the Isthmian Games. They were like the Olympics. And most scholars believe that not only was Paul aware of them, he may very well have attended some of these grand competitions. And so the ancient world that Paul lived in was just as enamored by sports and athletics as our world, and they would have understand competition. So Paul grabs this analogy, and he says, now you realize that in a race, everybody has the same goal. Now, he does say in verse 24 these words, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Now, whenever you study the Bible, this is important. When a biblical writer or a modern-day communicator uses analogies or metaphors, it is not the goal to press the analogy to a point of accuracy it was never intended. For example, when Jesus makes a statement, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich to enter heaven, he knows that it's physically impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a, a needle. He's using a hyperbole. He's using a figure of speech. Paul's not arguing that all Christians are running in a race and only one gets to go to heaven. That's not what he means. But he is saying this. Only you can run the Christian life God has spelled out for you, and only you can determine whether or not you accomplish all that God has for you to accomplish. That's the point. The point is when you see men 
toe the line of a race, when you watch women toe the line of competition, every one of them has put behind their plans for the day. They're not interested in any peripheral activities. They are focused. When you watch them just before they take the starting blocks, they're shaking their muscles. They're stretching. They're controlling their breathing. Some of them will visualize the race. Others will visualize every move in the race, every turn, every hurdle to jump. They will roll their neck. They will get themselves ready. They're in between that balance between being tense and ready and relaxed so their muscles will react. There is nothing else going on in their life. You're not going to text them and they're going to answer you during that time. They are focused on one thing. Paul watched this and he said, that's the key to the Christian life. Certainly the Christian life is a life where a person has plenty of stuff they have to handle, but above the fray, their mind is focused on the race God has for them. They think about accomplishing the will of God. Now let me just be your pastor for a moment. Listen to me. Can you imagine what would happen if we thought about accomplishing the will of God more in our life? You see, I'm convinced that one of the enemy's greatest tools in our culture is distraction. We can become so distracted by the details of life that we forget there is an eternal, epic, spiritual race taking place, and we are in it. When I think about mature Christians, I don't think about preachers or missionaries or theologians. I think sometimes you do mistakenly. When I think about mature Christians, they come in all shapes and sizes. I think about some little old ladies I knew that were prayer warriors. I think about young couples that bought one-way tickets to go to a foreign land and give their life in a difficult culture to make the gospel known. I think about everyday folks who might not stand out in a small group or in a worship service, but when you watch the consistency and the pattern of their life, there is a holiness and a godliness about every relationship. They're heroes in their home. The closer you get to them, the more you're impressed by them, not the less you're impressed by them. And one of the common denominators of these everyday Joes, these everyday Janes, these men and women who have a spiritual depth about them is that they never forget they're in a race against time. They only have a certain amount of days. God has foreordained that. And they know that in any given moment, they can accomplish the will of God or they cannot accomplish the will of God. And they want to race the race God has for them. In addition to <coughs> the idea of the race mattering, I think the chase matters. Look what he says in verse 25. Every athlete <coughs> exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But watch this. But we, an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. The prize in the ancient world was a wreath. There are statues that have been excavated from ancient Grecian cultures, and there are wreaths on the champions. They were actually made at times out of celery. I don't even like celery with peanut butter on it, much less it on my head, but they would make it out of celery. Later it was made out of pine, but it would be a wreath 
We see it now even in the Olympic Games. Sometimes symbolically, after the dawning of the medals, a champion will wear a wreath. This goes back to the ancient Greek history that is the formation of these games. And Paul says, look, look at the level these men and women give themselves to competition. And what do they get? They get the recognition. They get the applause. They get the status. And the symbol of all that is the wreath. If you want to walk into a room and see who won the race, it's the person with the wreath on. Yet Paul makes a simple observation. Wreaths wither. There'll be a race next year. If you win this year, you probably won't win next year. And you certainly, due to age and the way the body grows slower over time, won't always be the champion. So people give themselves to causes that are great and significant, but so temporary. And then Paul speaks to the Christian, and he says, but we have the opportunity to chase something that is eternal. Think about what he says to young Timothy. The last book Paul wrote was 2 Timothy. Most scholars believe right after writing this book, he was executed by the Roman emperor Nero. He knew his life was over. He even makes a reference in 2 Timothy. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Paul had, at this point, exhausted all the trials. He had made every appeal as a Roman citizen and had yet not gained his freedom. So as an intelligent man, he knew that his life was going to end under execution. What did he say to Timothy? He said what gets read often at faithful Christians' funerals. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, so in other words, because verse 7 is true, here's what he can expect in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then to make sure you know and I know that this is not just reserved for apostles, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I, I, I do think we ought to think about that day. I do think when things begin to struggle in our marriage, we ought to think about that day. I do think when somebody wrongs us and everything in us does not want to grant forgiveness, we ought to think about that day. Because I can tell you that every excuse we make not to be faithful, every excuse we make not to deal with our sin, every excuse we make to be lazy and to skip our time in the Word and to skip our time in prayer or to take advantage of those around us or to become a little bit too infatuated with the mere material possessions of the world, Every excuse we make to wallow in complacency will not matter that day. What will matter is being able to stand before the Lord, not worried for hell. There is no Christian who has to earn his salvation. But stand before the Lord and be able to say, to the best of my ability, I did everything I could with my life to leverage it for your glory. I loved the thought that you were coming back. And I lived with that thought in mind, which is exactly what Paul says. But also to all who have loved his appearing. What, what are you chasing? One of the greatest litmus tests of our spiritual life is how often does the kingdom enter our daydreams? We daydream about all kinds of stuff. Last week I was daydreaming about turkey. 
dressing, ham, sweet potato casserole, deviled eggs. We daydream about rivalries. Some of you thought you were in a daydream yesterday. It was so good. Others of you felt like it was a nightmare. You're already daydreaming about next year. We daydream about adding on a deck or finally putting that pool in or taking the kids to Disney. Or we daydream about what we would do if our back wasn't sore or if we could do this or could do that. We, we daydream about a lot of things. There is no sin in dreaming. I don't want to be around people who have no dreams. Often when I interview young men from ministry, I ask them, what you dream about? What you think about? I want to know what you think about. I can tell you what to do. I want to know what you're thinking about. What are you dreaming about? I like to be around people whose mind is filled with hopes and aspirations and plans and passions. There's nothing sinful about that. But there is everything sinful about coming, becoming so consumed with daydreaming on the temporary that we never daydream about the things that God wants. What does God desire? What does he think about? If you take the whole weight of Scripture and you would allow me, in my humble opinion, I think you could press it into two thoughts. He thinks on his glory because there is no higher thought. And he thinks about the redemption of mankind. He pursues the souls of people. He longs for people to come to know him. So give me a woman. Give me a man who will spend some of their time daydreaming and all of their time chasing the glory of God and the souls of other people, and I'll give you someone who one day will stand and hear for sure. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The race matters. The chase matters. And finally, the pace matters. Look how the passage ends. It ends where I will end. Yes, it is possible for your pastor to preach a short sermon. It's rare, but it is possible. Remember, sermonettes make Christianettes. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. You ever see somebody running aimlessly? It's a terrible thing. I do not run aimlessly. I've gone jogging before and ran hopelessly, but I've never run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Now, he's not talking about the physical exercise of boxers making punches in the air for their timing and their pectoral muscles and their triceps. He's talking about when you're in a fight, you don't want to waste any punches. Think about it. When boxers box and no one is knocked out, there is a decision. When they announce the decision of the winning fighter, they will announce a score. That score is based in large part on the number of punches landed, not the number of punches thrown. You can look real good throwing punches in the air, but when you get hit in the mouth, then you figure out who is the fighter. It's sort of like golf swings. Mine looks great till you put a ball in the formation. Some of you can play the guitar until you hand you a real guitar. You're good on air guitar, but a real guitar you would struggle. And so he's saying, I don't fight the Christian life by not landing the punches that need to be landed. Now, you may say, well, is he talking about fighting the enemy? Well, indirectly, yes, but directly, no. 
directly, he's talking about enemy number one. What is enemy number one to you and I living the victorious Christian life and running the race? It is our own flesh. This is the culmination of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Think about all the problems in the church at Corinth and how they relate back to flesh and pride and sexual sin and lust and anger and bitterness and envy and dissension. All this comes up from the sinful human heart, a heart that can be redeemed, but once redeemed still has to be conquered through the lordship of Christ every single day, which is why Paul says, what he does in his life. Look at it. I read verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. In other words, Paul says, my freedom to run is directly related to rules and regulation and discipline. I keep it under control. Paul's saying, I've not arrived at the point where I can just let go and expect that I'll always do the right thing. No, I must live within the rules and the regulations. Now, here's what our culture does. Our culture says, freedom and greatness and joy are the escape of rules and regulations and parameters. This is why we now live in a place that's redefining everything, even things that are obvious to preschoolers, like gender. And yet the Bible never treats rules, regulations, boundaries, perimeters as enemies of freedom and greatness and joy. It actually says they run hand in hand. Let me give you a simple illustration. James Naismith has something to do with every one of your Christmas lists. Now, who is this guy? Well, he's dead. He's not around anymore. But in 1891, he invented a sport called basketball with a peach basket and a soccer ball. He invented a sport called basketball. He needed something for kids to play inside. He also wanted to reduce injuries, so he put the goal up high. He also felt like when people ran full speed, they hurt each other more, so he made people dribble the ball, and he invented basketball. He then would go on to start the first ever collegiate basketball program at the University of Kansas. Now, when he invented basketball, he made the rules, the regulations, the boundaries. You can't just do anything you want on a basketball court. Well, I wasn't very good at basketball. If you needed a quick five fouls, put Horton in. I tell my kids, you know why you get five fouls when you go in? Because they don't give you six. Use them all. Use them all. You can't outjump me if you can't get off the floor. So he invented the rules. Well, the rules didn't dictate how the game's played. The game didn't dictate who's good at the game. Well, many, many decades later, one Michael Jordan comes along. And he's the greatest of all time. You can debate with me if you want to. If he's not the greatest, he's top two or three. And he played the game at an unbelievable level, so much so that we wanted to be like Mike. Now, you can't jump like Mike. You can't shoot like Mike. You can't dribble like Mike. But you can dress like Mike. The number one shoe for Christmas this year is still the Air Jordan 1 High OG Lost and Found. I do know that the longer the name of the shoe, the less likely pastor will ever preach in it. 
I always say about churches, the longer the name, the worse the theology, but then we went with church at the mill. But Air Jordan, one high, OG, lost and found. Why are those popular? Because they've become a cultural brand, an icon to have some Jordans. How'd that happen? It happened because a guy named Michael, a kid from North Carolina who got cut from the JV basketball team, went on to become the greatest basketball player of all time, and therefore Nike seized on the opportunity and said, kids want to be like Mike, let's let them buy his shoes. And so the Air Jordans were born. The modern era of the shoe deal was ushered in by him on a large scale. Michael Jordan played basketball with incredible freedom, but he had to do it in bounds. He had to hit the goal that was set. He couldn't move it up or down. It was 10 foot from the top of the rim to the court floor. You see, rules and regulations, boundaries and perimeters exist alongside freedom and joy. We know this about children. Children that are in a home where they are loved and disciplined flourish. They still struggle, but they don't struggle near as much as a child with no discipline. Well, guess what? We're children of God. Remember that I told you a simple question? What if the winning Christian life or the secret to winning the Christian life wasn't a secret at all? It's not. Here it is. It's not flashy. It's not even attractive. It's spiritual discipline. It's disciplining yourself to put your heart and your life in the best possible position to honor the Lord. And as you walk with the Lord in obedience, whether or not you feel it, God then uses your willingness to run the race according to his rules to flourish you in victory. Sometimes the best illustration is a small town, a gospel song, and a horse. If you go to Orangeburg, South Carolina, and you go a little bit more toward Lake Marion, you'll find a little town called Holly Hill, South Carolina. Anybody ever been there? Holly Hill. It's a crossroads. This is the old depot there. Holly Hill, South Carolina. Years ago, a young man was born there named Eddie. Last name Sweat, like work hard and sweat, Eddie Sweat. Eddie's from Holly Hill, South Carolina. He had a thing for horses. He was the son of dirt farmers, scraping by. He started working around a horse farm. The owner saw he had a way with horses, and so he worked his way up into horse racing as a handler. Eddie Sweat, a South Carolinian, became the handler of the greatest racehorse in history, Secretariat. And the fascinating thing about the story is Disney portrays it, is that Eddie Sweat is singing and worshiping as he's washing Big Red down, his nickname for Secretariat, during a time when the owner of the horse is discouraged. And in the background, I'm so glad Disney chose to do this. I don't agree with many of their decisions, but they chose to highlight the song, Oh, Happy Day. Oh, Happy Day is an old, old, old hymn, but it was made a black spiritual in the late 1960s by the Edwin Hawkins singers. Put them on your iTunes. They're good. They'll lift your soul. And so whenever, whenever the last race happens, they've been struggling with Secretariat because they've been holding him back. 
They knew they had a machine of a horse, but they didn't want him to lose a race because he went too fast, too quickly. And there's this great moment of the culmination of the singing of the gospel, Oh Happy Day, and the owner telling the jockey, just let him run. Just let him do what God made him to do. And I love Eddie Sweat's reaction to it. Take a look. I love that the moment that horse crosses the finish line, the great singer says, Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. They said of Secretariat, if God wanted to design a horse born to run, he did it when he made that horse. When he died, they did an autopsy, and his heart was twice the size of the average thoroughbred. It's as if God said, I'm going to build a horse that was born to run. Listen to me, Christian. When you got saved, you were born again to run. You were born again to run. Stumble at times, yes. Struggle, absolutely. Physically, your body will deteriorate. Emotionally, you will deal with all kinds of sorrow and victory in this life. Relationally, you're going to have people come along that love you and lift you up and others that hurt you and put you down. But, but, but put all that aside. You were born to run the race God has before you. Pastor, how do I do that? Run to Him. Run to prayer. Run to His Word. Run to love. Run from sin. Run to reconcile. Run to share. Run to serve. Run to worship run to give. I seem to remember my church saying, gather, grow, give, go, gather, grow, give, go. The reason is because I know that when we do our part in the disciplines of our faith, oh, we're free to run, and we are bound to finish.